A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheißbare Brüder in America. So tauten Schabes at the guitar. Out of the 24 who were killed, were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Without any further delay, it gives me great cover to ask, to share with us uh, some of his uh, expertise and wisdom in this uh, very interesting topic. Thank you, Rabbi Stein, Bishos, Ramar Asra, Rabbi Stein, and uh, everyone else who came here who uh, invited me. Dovi and Yaakov and uh, Ellie and anyone else who's involved, I don't know. Uh, so just to uh, talk a little bit tonight, I just landed this morning, so I may look at my notes a little bit more than usual. hope that's okay with everyone. Um, so what Mamish, what uh, Rabbi Stein was saying, uh, what the Rabbi was saying uh, just now, how appropriate it is for Hanukkah, it's also because the topic of transplanting Hasidus is is light, you know, the light of Hasidus, which is not only caused by Yavon, it's sometimes caused by the Litvaks, and we have to warm up uh, the atmosphere, and uh, with the light of Hasidus, once in a while, and, uh, and, uh, and, and definitely the, bringing that light to America, to the cult kite of America, and the darkness is, a, is an amazing story to be told, and it can't be more appropriate time than Hanukkah, and it can't be more appropriate place than the Rudnik Eshtibel right here to, to discuss that a little bit. I want to start with a, from the other side of the globe, where I just came from, um, from Eretz Yisrael. Sorry. Um, in 1946, Let's try to think, let's try to transport ourselves back in time, which is what we always try to do in these type of talks. Let's imagine that we're standing in 1946. The devastation of what just had taken place is starting to sink in. You know, during the actual years of the war, it was hard for people to understand or even imagine or even know what was going on. And, and, and as the news reports come in towards the end of the war, and... It's not just the knowledge of the news, but it's internalizing it, and it's the recognition and the realization of what had happened, the absolute decimation and destruction of that whole world. And people were, the Jewish people were experiencing a trauma. And that's something that we also have to understand and, uh, and be aware of. 
And there was a fellow, a journalist, a writer, a guy by the name Yitzchak Varfel, and he's a, a religious Zionist, but he's a, a chassid, he comes from a chassidish background, and he's writing in a very, again, it's not in a, I'm emphasizing it's not in a critical way, he's not someone coming from the outside to say that chassidus doesn't exist because he doesn't like chassidus, it's actually just the opposite, he loves chassidus, and he comes from that world, and he writes something that today we would be shocked if someone would write such a thing. He writes, this was published in an article in the newspaper in 1946, and it was written in Hebrew, so I'm going to just give a rough translation. He writes how Hasidus is a one, was, a, was a wonderful movement that brought so much to the Jewish people, and so much spirituality, and so much contribution to the growth and the development of the Jewish people the last couple of hundred years. And now, with the news from Europe, that that whole world of Hasidus is now gone. And the movement has reached its end. It's appropriate that we now write the history of the movement. Because one day, people will want to know, what was this movement that brought so much to the Jewish people? And now that it's the last chapter of it, meaning its destruction is taking place or has taken place, so it's appropriate that with the last people who are around, who know the story, we should <coughs> be able to record it and write it down so that it's never forgotten. Oh, that's a very powerful thing to say. That means he's writing it as a, not just as a history book, but as a eulogy. As a, he's, he's writing it as a hespit, the movement no longer exists. Now, when he published his memoirs at the end of his life, and he attached it a collection of his greatest articles, he, he wrote this in 1991, almost 50 years later, 45 years <coughs> later. So when he published this article, he edited it and revised it due to the recent decades where apparently they hadn't disappeared. And the question I want to ask is, why was it so obvious to someone like him that it was gone in 1946? And why was he wrong? How did it happen? How did it take place that he was wrong? Now, he's talking about it in Eretz Yisrael. Well, we can ask the same question right here in the United States, which is the topic of our discussion tonight. But how could it be that someone who was looking at the situation in 1946, that it's gone, it's done for, it already played its role in history, and they're completely proven incorrect. So, if we take the history of Hasidus in context from its beginning till now, what we'll notice is, is that until after the Second World War, Hasidus never really left its birthplace. It, it, it was born, it was literally born in the district of Podolia in the Ukraine, and around the area of Mezhebizh in the, the mid-18th century. But if we get in a broader geographical sense, it was born in Eastern Europe. And it never really left Eastern Europe. It never quite made it to Germany. No. It never quite made it to Holland, to England. I'm talking about in the 18th, 19th, and early 20th centuries. And the early 20th century kind of makes it to Vienna, a little bit to Leipzig. Eh. Never really makes it to Italy. It never really makes it anywhere outside the main centers of Eastern Europe. And Vienna is the exception that proves the rule because it only happened during World War I and it only happened because they were forced into exile. 
but it never really made it out. That means it was unsuccessful at transplanting itself to any other part of the world, aside from the main centers of, Jewish, of the Jewish population of Eastern Europe. It never made it out. There are a lot of places in the world where the Jewish people lived. And the same way that it made it to parts of Russia and Lithuania and Poland and Hungary, it could have made it to other countries. And it didn't for 250 years. That's a long time. So that means that it strengthens the question. There's no reason it should have made it in America. There's also no reason it should have made it in Eretz Yisrael, but Eretz Yisrael is also the exception that proves the rule. There was a small settlement of Hasidim there almost from the beginning of the movement, from the late 18th century. There was an aliyah of Hasidim. They developed a Hasidic community, both in the up north in Sassantaria, and later on, as the 19th century wore on, also in Yerushalayim. But, again, why should it have made it in America? if it never made it outside its natural birthplace up until that point. So, I'll start off by answering the question by uh, talking about the place we're in now. That uh, we'll bring it into context. We're in the Rudnik Eshtibel. I spoke to Rabbi Stein a couple of years ago about the Rudnik Eshtibel, and I'll be honest, before I spoke to Rabbi Stein, I never heard of it, so I hope uh, no one's offended by that. But I did hear of Rudnik. I didn't know there was a Rudnik Yeshtibel. I didn't hear of Rudnik. Why? Because Rudnik is a place that we pass by on a lot of the trips. Rudnik is a real place. And Rudnik is a shtetl in Galicia. And, and what place does it have? So we would think, nothing. I mean, I never heard of the Rudnik Rebbe. And I never heard of the famous Rudnik dynasty. I never heard of any wealthy people who came from Rudnik. I mean, what kind of relevance and importance can it have in the greater scope of Jewish history and existence if none of the above uh, would happen there? But as it happens, there's loads of, 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 of Hasidus. And what we're continuing here in the Rudnik Eshtibel is a long legacy of Hasidus. And this is building Hasidus in America right here as we speak. The Rudnik Rebbe, you don't know what you're continuing here right now. And, and the, the king, and to a certain extent the main leader of Galicia Hasidus, in the latter part of the 18th century, was the Divrichayim of Tzans. I think there's no one who's going to argue on that. The Belzers will try to come up with the saying that the Belzers were, but between Belz and Tzans, those were the two main streams of Hasidus in Galicia. You have, in every, in every area within Eastern Europe, I said it's in all over Eastern Europe, but in every area of Eastern Europe, there's, there's the, dominant, uh, the dominant Hasidus, the dominant stream. You have in Congress Poland, Central Poland, whatever it's called, kingdom, a former kingdom of Poland. You have Ger, you have Alexander, you have Radomsk, you have in the areas of Belarus and Lithuania, Chabad and Karlin, a little bit slonim. You have in Hungary, you have Siget and, and a few other smaller ones, Kalev. And then you have in Galicia, you have mainly Sans, which all its branches that came from it. And you have Bells, which was a major Hasidus as well. So much so, by the way, that the philosophy of Galicia Hasidus was very different than almost every other area of Hasidus that existed, except for Hungary. Hungary is very similar to Galicia <laughs> in this respect is that the, uh, the role that the Rebbes of, of the Hasidus in Galicia played was not just limited to being a Rebbe, a Tzaddik, a Hasidic leader. It was actually to be a rabbinical head of the town. The people who were Rebbes, and this came from the Divrei Chaim and the Sar Shalom of Bells, the original Bells of Rebbe, 
the idea was, and Hungary similarly came from the Yisrael of Hungary, of uh, the founder of the Teitelbaum uh, dynasty, which is a whole different uh, story. But the idea was to be a rabbi, a paisik, a leader of a community, in the traditional sense, a regular rabbi, respected for his Talmudic achievement and for his leadership capabilities of the community as a town, as a community. And in addition to that role, he also assumes the role of a Hasidic Rebbe, of a leader, of a tzaddik, someone who's, who has both crowns, and that was the dominant and main feature of Galicia Hasidus. So much so that on the eve of the Second World War, you'll not, you're not going to find a single town in Galicia that the rabbi of the town is not some sort of anical of the Devei Chaim, or the Belzareva, or a chassid of one of those. In other words, the chassidus of Galicia had so taken over Jewish life there that the rabbinical, the, the rabbis of the towns and the communities, were all, all came from this, uh, from this branch. So then we come back into Rudnik. So Rudnik plays a role that the Debrechaim himself started in Rudnik. We call the Rechaim of Tzans. And he's the Tzans chassidus and the Tzans dynasty. The Tzans dynasty starts in Rudnik. Right? How did he end up in Sanz? His rebbe, Naftali of Rapshid, sent him to Sanz. Sanz was a major town in the south of Poland. And, the, and, and, and it's funny, and it's many towns like this, many towns in, in, uh, in Poland, there's a Polish name and a Yiddish name. And somehow they're two different names, <laughs> completely different names very often. Sometimes they're similar. Now the, the town of Sanz is Novisats. So Novi is new. Okay, so in Yiddish they drop the new because we don't like things new. We're conservative. We like, uh, we like when things are old and traditional. All right, we drop the Novi. But it's Satz, not Sanz. So the Rapshitzer, so goes the Hasidic legend. He said, it's Satz without a Tzadi. But if we send a Tzadik there, then there'll be a Tzadik and it'll become Tzans. And he sends the Devrechayim to Tzans and it becomes Tzans. Okay. But he starts off in Rudnik. Most of his children are born in Rudnik. In other words, the roots of the entire uh, Sanz dynasty are born in Rudnik. From his first marriage. He was married four times, and his 15 kids came from his first and third wives. His second and fourth wives didn't work out. And he was old by the time his fourth time. In fact, he was so old that many people thought it was inappropriate that he should even be looking to get married a fourth time. I mean, come on, Rabbi, slow it down. And uh, they asked his oldest son, Rabbi Cheskel of Shinova, Rabbi Cheskel of Shinova, Rabbi Cheskel, asked to maybe tell your father uh, to, to stop, uh, to, 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 not, to not, not, not bother with it. Um, so he went to his father's Mechutten, the loser of Jikov. Who was the loser of Jikov? The son of the Rapshitzer. So he was the son of his Rabbi, and he was also his Mechutten. Rabbi Meir Nassen, his fourth son, who was the father of Rabbi of Babav, was his mechutten. And they told, they, they told him, maybe you could convince him not to get remarried. He said, I myself got remarried. So, so um, sorry, I just ruined it. He said, you didn't get remarried after, you, uh, you, uh, you, uh, after your wife died, so tell, tell your mechutten. So he told his son, you tell your father that I said that I got married to the Torah after my wife died. So... You know, that's something to think about. So he went to his father, and he said, you know, you're mechutten. A loser of Jikiv, after his wife died, he got married to the Torah. So he said, he got married to the Torah. 
he got that shidduch already. Okay, that's it. So I have to look for a wife. Okay, so he got married a fourth time. So, so the Debrechaim, where does it happen? It starts in Rudnik. The fifth son of the Debrechaim is one of the most famous and one of the most important because a lot of dynasties came from him. Is Rebaruch of Garlitz. Garlitz is right next to Rudnik, which is, why, which is why we pass it on the road. I never went into Rudnik, but we pass it because Garlitz is a place we go to. Baruch of Garlitz, a big tzaddik, a very famous person in the history of Hasidus. And he, before he comes to Garlitz, is the rabbi in... Rudnik. Now, his kids are born in Rudnik. So, again, the next generation of sons is in Rudnik as well. And when he, is, when he moves over and becomes the Rav in Garlitz, his son, Rav Hirsch, becomes the Rav in Rudnik. So it continues a third generation already in Rudnik. He's buried there. And um, his oldest son, Rav Tully, was a Rav in Rudnik. When he dies, his younger brother, Rav Rom, becomes Rav Rudnik. He's the last Rav Rudnik. He's killed by the Nazis. Most of the Jews of Rudnik are killed by the Nazis in the Belzhets extermination camp, which is also not far from there. It's right near Lublin, and a little further north. And uh, most of the Jews are sent there in the summer of 1942 in uh, a very quick operation. Unfortunately, there's almost no survivors from the Jews of Rudnik, like most other towns in that part of Galicia. And, um, and along with their Rav, the last Rav of Rudnik, the great-grandson of the Debrei Chaim. But this Rav Tzvi Hirsch, um, who I mentioned, the father of this guy, his youngest son was the Kleisenberger Rebbe. Right? The Kleisenberger Rebbe, who's very famous, some of these people are not so famous, but the Kleisenberger Rebbe, who survived the camps, who rebuilt and Sons and Netanya and here in the United States, and he's part of the story of the rebirth of Hasidus in the United States in a major way. He's one of the builders. He's one of the people who, after he lost his wife and ten kids in the war, he went ahead and said, I don't give up, and I'm going to build it again, both in Eretz Yisrael and America. He's a story on both sides of the Atlantic. And he grows up in Rudney. And that's where he starts off. He moves to Hungary later on. And he was very proud of his Galicia He never talked about how much he was Hungarian, right? He got a job in Hungary, you know. He got married into he married to the title bounds, so a little Hungarian Ichis there. But he's he's a Rudniker. And that's where he grows up, that's where he starts off his career. So the Kleisenberger, who's a story of the rebirth of Hasidus in the United States and in Israel, is also part of the Rudnik story. So there you go, that uh, and then somehow someone from that Rudniker sons. Legacy comes, uh, comes over to the west side and continues the actual name of Rudnik. So this is a major part of the rebirth of Hasidus uh, in, in the U.S. after the war. Now, the first Hasidim to come to America come before the war. To, to limit it to a story of a post-war would be to not give credit to what happened here earlier, to the people who laid the foundations beforehand, and that's at two levels. And I want to talk about the simple, basic level of the people, not of the Rebbes who came, the people who came, because there was a massive immigration to the United States between 1881, when the program started in Russia, which was the instigator of the great massive immigration, between 1881 and 1925, over two and a half million Jews arrived on these shores, mainly through New York, and... and, uh, and um, and they set up a new life here in the new world. We're talking about millions of people from all walks of life. Were there Hasidim among... Why did it stop in 1925? Because of the U.S. Congress. Not because it got so great back home, but because of the Johnson Act that was passed in Congress that limited 
immigration to what's called until today, I believe, the quota system. That from certain countries there's a quota of who's allowed to come in and how many in any given year. So, but during that time, millions of people come. And all these people who come, there are also Hasidim naturally who come. They're not those who don't, they don't, they don't. And these people have a connection to Hasidus. And what do they do with that when they come here? So legend has it that not just Hasidim, but everyone just abandons Yiddishkeit when they come. It wasn't everyone. And the people who didn't, they tried to maintain as much of their religious identity and cultural and Jewish identity that they possessed on the other side of the Atlantic. So let's think about it. Here's a distinction in, in language that I would make. Is, is there a difference between Hasidim and Hasidish. So maybe, or maybe we can make one up now. Um, but if I say someone is not young, but he's youngish, so it means he's not really young, he's kind of young, right? So someone who's Hasidish, he's, he's not really a Hasid, but he's kind of, you know, a little bit like that. So there are many people who come who are Hasidish in that, in that context. Many. Are there real Hasidim who come? Well, it depends. What does a real Hasid mean? By the end of the 19th century, and by the beginning of the 20th century, when these immigrants are arriving, if you would ask anyone in Eastern Europe, what does a Hasid mean? They'll follow up with one question. Can anyone guess what that question is? Of whom? Right? A Hasid means of someone. And that's obvious. Why does it have to be that way? That's a discussion in the history of Hasidus. That's not talking about transplanting it to America. That's talking about how Hasidus developed, because it's very likely that the Valshemtiv would not have agreed that that's the ideal of what a, what a Hasidus is supposed to be. But that's definitely what it became very quickly, possibly even in the Valshemtiv's lifetime, but for sure right afterwards. So, so in that sense, there were not that many Hasidim. Why not? Because most of those rebels said, do not immigrate to America. By the way, if someone was very closely attached to a rebbe, he had less of a reason to, to, uh, to, to move in the first place. Let's think about, a, in a, from a sociological point of view, what is the profile of someone who migrates from his comfort zone, from his good, normal, regular, normative life, and pick up and leave everything behind? The reasons are mainly economic. But they're also cultural, they're also social, there's a lot of factors that go into someone. It's a major move to leave his whole world behind, move to literally to a new world. Much more than it would be today, and even today it's a major thing to move, to pick up, to go to another country. So, someone who's closely attached to a specific court of a Hasidic Rebbe is less likely to move in the first place. So many of the people who are moving at that time the ones who belong to the world of Hasidus, obviously, because they're Jews moving from all over Eastern Europe and not necessarily Hasidim. But they are people who we would call Hasidish. Some of the first shuls in the Lower East Side and in Williamsburg and in Brownsville, all the old, good old Jewish neighborhoods of New York City, are Anshe Sfard. Now, it's an interesting title, right? Anshe Sfard is making a very strong statement. First of all, we don't doubt in Ashkenaz, right? But they're not calling him, they're not calling them Sadiger, uh, Tzanz, uh, Skver, Chabad. That's not the name of the shul. The name of the shul is Anshei Sfard. So I have here a very interesting... Uh, I'm Hasidish. I identify as Hasidish. But I, I'm not specifically part of any grouping of Hasidus. Right? 
Now these people who are semi-attached and hold on to that cultural attachment to Hasidus, they lay the foundation for the Rebbes who come both before the war, and there are quite a few of those, and to the Rebbes who come after the war. So there are a few who come before. In 1890 already, there's a, a fellow Rabbi Horowitz, who is not any Rebbe in Europe, but he makes himself a Rebbe here, and that becomes one of the features of pre-war Jewish life, is that, uh, and this in the Yiddish press, it was very common to see, that you had people who hung up shingles outside their home, uh, this and this Rebbe, and he's available for services, to, to give brachas, and to accept donations, of course, and, and there were many charlatans who made up an identity, look, who's going to stop them? There were some who even assumed the specific identity of a Rebbe back in Europe, but who's going to go check? And they know what happened? Some of those Rebbes immigrated, and then they had to assume a new identity, because now he's exposed. And that happened. That happened. Because some real Rebbes did, did show up eventually in the 1920s and 30s. Some of the first Rebbes to show up in the 1920s and 30s were from the Chernobyl dynasty. Why would that dynasty of all be the first, from the first, not the first, there are other ones, this Horowitz eventually became a Rebbe in Buffalo, and he's known today as the first Rebbe to have died in the United States, and people started making a, a Niagara Falls Buffalo trip to go to this uh, caver of a tzaddik, which became very popular recently, and, um, and uh, you know, and, uh, and, and as other Rebbes, who, the Yampola Rebbe, who was the father of the Scolia dynasty, who's buried right here in Queens, in Mount Judah, and they'll be visiting him on Wednesday morning, God willing. And, uh, and, he, and, he, uh, and he's also one of the first Rebbes. He visits the United States in 1890 and eventually settles down here a few years later. And he opens as the first genuine, one of the first genuine real Rebbes from an existing dynasty. He's a grandson of the Zlachev or Magad, Michal of Zlachev. And he becomes a real Rebbe here in New York City in the early years of the 1900s, and that's already happening, even before the war. And, but from the Chernobyl dynasty, they start arriving in the 1920s, the Tversky's, that's the Chernobylers. Tolner Rebbe in Boston, who's the father of Professor Isidore Tversky, who's, who married the daughter of Rav Soloveitchik. And there's uh, out in Denver, where all the, who's the Harness Stipler Rebbe, which is also a Tversky from Chernobyl. That's, that's uh, Abraham J. Tversky, or Michal Tversky, and Professor Aaron Tversky. All of them are sons of the Harness Stipler Rebbe. Who's also, why did the Tverskys come? Where does the Chernobyl dynasty originate from, and where, do they, where are they successful at building their, their whole dynasty? In the Ukraine. What happens to central and western Ukraine, in eastern Ukraine, excuse me, after World War I? Comes communist. End of Jewish life there. So these Rebbes are forced to immigrate, and therefore some of them become the first Rebbes to come to the United States. Who's one of the first Rebbes to visit the United States in the interwar period? The Lubavitcher Rebbe, the Rayats, the Friedrich Rebbe, in 1929. Why does he come? For the same exact reason. Any Rebbes who were in Russia were more likely to come to America at an earlier stage because of that very reason. So there is a basis, both from the people, the Anshe Sfar, the Hasid Disha people, and some real Hasidim, the Yanuka of Stolen, Rabbi Srel Perlau, was one of the few Rebbes who were tzaddikim, who were known in Europe, that he was not opposed to immigration. Most of the big Rebbes in Europe were very anti-America, the Trefa Medina, 
and then, and then people don't keep Shabbos, which was happening in Poland too. I'm not going to get into that now, and uh, and and uh, and all kinds of and all kinds of you know things like that, which are common not just to Hasidic rabbis but to all all types, and therefore they are opposed to immigration to the United States. The Inuka of Stalin, Rabbi Israel Perlow, he was okay with it. He wasn't he wasn't so against it. And from the first Hasidic shtibels that had the name of a specific dynasty back in Europe was Karli. Later Chabad also. Why Chabad? Because of what I just said. People running away from communism, they still identified with Chabad, but they were forced to immigrate and they came to the United States. So you have already shtibels carrying names of dynasties. By the way, the, the Inuka of Stalin, and one of the great ironies, when he was vacationing in Frankfurt, he died very young. He was in his 50s. And he's buried in Frankfurt, one of the only Rebbes buried in Western Europe. So here's someone who is not anti-immigration to the terrible world of the West, and he ends up being buried there. Great, next to Shamshin Rafael Hirsch in the new uh, Frankfurt Cemetery. So we, um, we, we have, we have that, that foundation that comes there. Now we come to the next stage, to the post-war. The post-war era, we have Rebbes who are coming as refugees. And these people, who had lost a lot, people like I mentioned with the Kleisenberger Rebbe, like the Babava Rebbe, the, the Kedusha's scene of Babav was the king of Galicia, they called him. He's the grandson of the Devi Chaim of Tzans. He starts the Eitz Chaim Yeshiva network throughout Galicia, over 70 yeshivas, very successful, very popular, tens of thousands of Hasidim, and he's shot by... Nazi, Ukrainian Nazi collaborators in Lvov in the summer of 1941. His son, Reb Shleimov who loses his wife, most of his children, and a whole series of miracles, which I'm not going to get into now, manages to make it to the shores of the United States at the end of the war with nothing. And he rebuilds. Lubavitcherev, who escapes at the beginning of the war. The Satmarov, who <clears throat> famously, I mean, today they, they took over the whole place, right? They're the biggest, uh, the, the, the biggest of, the, of them all, bigger than Ger and Eretz Yisrael. And who also gets a foothold there, even though the main building of Ger, rebuilding of Ger, took place in Eretz Yisrael. That's where the Ger Rebbe was. There also, there's demographic uh, quirks here. There happened to be more Polish survivors who moved to Eretz Yisrael and more Hungarians who moved to America, which I'm not going to get into now. But that's also a, a quirk in the system. But I want to I share a, a couple of stories about the feeling that these refugees had. So that again, we appreciate what the atmosphere was like in 1945, 1946, 1947, and we shouldn't take it for granted what they were successful at building. And it's always more powerful when we zero in on a specific story, an anecdote that took place. The Blue Rebbe was one of those. Now, he didn't build a massive dynasty, but his contribution to both the rebirth of Hasidus, Tyra, Yiddishkeit, and Jewish life, by the way, another week and a half we're celebrating the Siyam HaShas. To the best of my knowledge, till today the Siyam HaShas is dedicated in memory of the six million Jews who were killed by the Nazis during the Holocaust. And they announced it, and some of the speeches talk about it, every Siyam HaShas that I'm aware of. And that is because of one person, the Blue Jivareba. He pushed it for years, for decades. Only in 1975 was it accepted by the Mayetzes Gedele Hatayra of Agudis Yisrael, which he was a member of. And some of the other members of the Mayetzes Gedele Hatayra were not Holocaust survivors, and they didn't appreciate 
what he wanted and what was so important to dedicate the Siyam Ashas of the Dafyemi in memory of the six million who were killed in the final solution. So they, didn't, uh, they weren't so excited, they didn't jump onto the idea so quickly. But he pushed and he was persistent until he finally got them to do it and that's how it remains till today. That's another one of the many contributions that the Blue Javar Rebbe did. The Blue Javar Rebbe literally went through the war from beginning to end. Rabbi Yisrael Spira, he's a grandson of Bnei Soschar, one of the leaders of Polish Hasidus and a, a very popular Rav and Rebbe before the war. He's in his 50s when the war breaks out, loses his wife and kids. Most of his Hasidim is in the Lvov Ghetto, the Yanovska Road Camp. Terrible, terrible camp in Lvov. Today, historians are reclassifying it as an extermination site, not a concentration camp, because the horror of what took place there uh, and that we, we are just understanding now is causing us to reclassify it as what it was. And he survives that too. He even ends up in Belgium, which no one survived from, but he sent out right away by a miracle on a train to take stuff back to Lvov. He ends up in Bergen-Belsen. He went through everything, through six years of it. Six years of it. And a totally broken man. You know, the, most survivors, they fit into a specific age demographic. They're between 18 and 30, 35, I don't remember. In Yad Vashem, they have the numbers. And he's in his 50s, and he somehow survived it all. And he is pulling into, right, not far from the west side, he's pulling into New York Harbor. Statue of Liberty. And a non-Jewish American sailor is standing with him on the deck. And he appreciates that this is a grand rabbi of the Jewish people who had just survived the war. They just spent two weeks on the boat together. I guess he got to know him a little bit. And he says, Rabbi, you see that statue? Here, in America, we welcome you, and here you can rebuild. And I'll even tell you something more than that. This is a non-Jewish sailor, anonymous guy, tells the Blues of a Rebbe. Broken, in 1946, after the war. He tells him, on the pedestal of the Statue of Liberty, there's a poem written by a Jewish poetess, Emma Lazarus. Now, I don't know, I don't know exactly how it goes. So you'll correct me if I'm uh, saying it. But it goes something like this. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to be free. Tempest tossed to me. I lift up my lamp beside my door. Something, like, something along those lines. Okay, I'm Israeli. I don't know the poems of uh, American... Uh, American tradition all by heart. And he, go, and, and he says to him, this is, this is your new home. This is where we welcome you. This is where you can rebuild. You can leave back all the destruction that you experienced, and here you can rebuild again. And the Belushiva Rebbe starts to cry. And the Belushiva Rebbe says to him, thank you. Thank you for welcoming, welcoming me and giving me the one place that I have an opportunity to rebuild. But I have a correction for you. No, he translates it for him. He has someone there and he doesn't understand. The Blue Jarev doesn't know English then. And he says, you said there were huddled masses yearning to be free. I have news to tell you. The huddled masses of the Jewish people are gone. There are no huddled masses anymore. And what we have is a few individuals left. And it's up to those few individuals to go ahead and rebuild what was lost. And those individuals have to take it upon themselves and their responsibility to understand their position to rebuild what was lost. He says that in 1946. That's very different from the pessimistic view he said before. But I want to take it a step further. It's like a kind of in-between. He's crying, he's broken, 
He recognizes that it's all gone, but he says there's a few individuals and they have to do it. The Kloisenberger Rebbe was also, he said, Rudnik, he's, he's part of this story. He comes to America also after the war, loses his wife and ten kids. And most of the books say 11, by the way. The reason I said 10 a few times is because the 11th one died before the war. And all the books know that he lost 11. So without bothering to check when they all died, they just say he lost 11. If you want to say he lost 11, he lost 11 in his lifetime. But he lost 10 during the war. The idea is you're talking about what his losses were during the war. Okay, that's getting technical. So the Kloisenberger Rebbe also arrives in America. He eventually remarries, has a new family, the current sons of the Rebbe. In, uh, in Eretz Yisrael, Netanya, is, uh, is his son, but from a second marriage. And the Kloisenberger Rebbe, and this I heard about a year ago. This is a relatively fresh story from an eyewitness. Okay? We have a guy who's, who took his children and grandchildren on a family tour with me in Yad Vashem. I took them around the museum. Ba ba ba. Great guy from Seattle. Funny accent, but you know, we're, you deal with it. The Seattle accent happens. <laughs> So, so he, he, at the end of the tour, he says, I want to tell you a story. I'm from Seattle. I was born in America in his 80s. And my parents were part of that great immigration. But he didn't come from the Hasidic world. Very far from it. His mother grew up in a town called Vaboyelnik. Does anyone here know another famous person who grew up in Vaboyelnik? It's fine. It's okay. I wasn't testing you. It's okay. Rav Shach. Rav Shach grew up in Vabayelnik. When he was in Slabatka, they called him the Vabayelniker. Okay. So you're talking about a real Litvish place. A real, you know, it's northern Lithuania, the drafts there. It's, it's, it's a cold place. Real Litvak. And this guy, this guy is telling me this where his mother immigrated to. And he grows up in Seattle. And his parents stayed very religious. And they sent him all the way to the East Coast in the 1940s to learn in Tervidas. So this Litvak from Seattle is learning now in New York and Torah and it's 1947 and the Kloisenberger Rebbe arrives in New York, in Williamsburg, where Torah was at the time. And this is what the guy tells me. This I heard from the man himself who was there. He said, Rav Shagafayvah who appreciated Hasidus and tried to make Torah a somewhat Hasidish place, he asked and he begged a, a group of Bachram in Tervadas, he said, there's this big tzaddik, he's a big rabbi, and he went through terrible times, and he lost a wife and ten kids. And he's a nebach, he's a broken man. And, and it's sad, it's just tragic. He's, a, he's a, it's just someone we have to have Rachmanes on. And he rented out like a hole. You know, it's one of his first Shabbosim that he's trying to make an event, and he's making a tish Friday night. And no one's really going to go. We need a group of guys in Taravadas, yeshiva guys, come and sit by the Kwanzaa. It's just doing a chesed. So he went, and this Litvak was exposed to Hasidish River. He didn't know what he was doing there. What's a tish? What's going on? A chesed? Even Litvaks can do chesed. It's fine. He goes out and he does it. He goes, he sits down. And he said, it was a sad, sad Friday night. He said, because you saw in front of you a broken man. He said, you know how broken he was? We thought he was crazy. He got up, and he, and he said, Brother, by the way, we were the only ones there. He rented out this big hall, and the only ones who were there were these Bachram from Tarvadas who went as a chesed, because of Shagra Fadlam and the Lovish told him to go, the Kleisenberger Rebbe, okay? It's hard to believe. I heard it from the guy. And, and the Kleisenberger Rebbe is talking about his vision and his dreams. And he said, the guy sounded like a crazy person. And we all said to each other, 
he lost so much. It's sad. He said, he said, I'm going to go to Eretz Yisrael and I'm going to build new things and neighborhoods and I'm going to build stuff. I'm going to open a yeshiva and I'm going to rebuild Hasidus and I'm going to bring back the glory to Tzans. And he said, we said to each other, it's sad. This guy is lost. This guy, he's, he's, it's Nebuch. And he said, that's how we went back to yeshiva that night. And we told our friends. But it was a chesed. He said, I'm 85 years old today. Or whatever it was. He's in his 80s today. And the Kaiser Rebbe is long gone. And he said he did every single thing that he told us that Friday night. Every single one. Did not miss a beat. Did not miss a single thing that he was going to do. Talked about Mephila Shas that night. He talked about... Build, I don't know if he's at a hospital, but he's building a lot in Eretz Yisrael. And he did it all. Every single thing. So here we have, in these different stories, a, an idea, an ideal, that, that we can look at Hasidus in 1946 and it's gone. That's the first, that's what we started off with. We can look at, like the Blue Jehovah Rebbe said, that it's up to individuals to rebuild again. And then we can look at it like the Kleisenberg Rebbe and have these visions that are so wild and so crazy that everyone looks at you as if you're crazy. Now, besides for the fact that these were amazing people, there's a lot of factors that went into play that I'm just going to touch on um, in, in uh, just a little bit uh, um, in the last couple of minutes that we have. Um, but one of the major components of post-war Hasidus that ultimately makes them successful, even though when it started out, it seemed like that would be a guarantee that it would not be successful, was the fact that because everything was destroyed, so now everything from that world became nostalgic, became holy, became something to not give up, no matter what. And this went in regards to everything. It went in regards to language. How many Hungarian Hasidim before the war spoke Yiddish? Almost none. They spoke Hungarian. In Poland, they spoke Yiddish. They were not so into Polish by the Hasidim. But, uh, but in, in, in Hungary, they spoke Hungarian. How many Hasidim in either Poland or Hungary wore strimals on Shabbos? Those couldn't afford it. And the ones who did didn't necessarily mean you were Hasidish. It was cold. And a lot of Russians until today wear fur hats. And when it's cold outside, it was freezing eight months of the year. But now... The strimal became a symbol of a world that was lost. The language becomes a symbol of a world that was lost, and I'll take it a step further. Again, I'm keeping coming back to the Rodnik Hashtibel. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm banging at this, uh, at this point. Why does, why does it become the Rodnik Hashtibel? You have a few like that in the neighborhood. The Biyan Hashtibel, the Kajnitz Hashtibel, you have, and they're all over the world. The names of the Hasidus has become holy. Before the war, you know that there was something called the Clevelander Rebbe? One of the Nadvarna branches, the Leifer. There was a Pittsburgher Rebbe before the war, even the Bustoner, which actually was one of the ones that became successful. There's not a single Hasidus from the post-war of Eretz Yisrael or of America that is named after an American or Israeli town. It does not exist. Why? Because all of a sudden, even the towns become holy. It's a relic from the past. And then here's the last point. The people, those few refugee Rebbes, those few refugee Tzadikim, they are a connection to the past. What does the Bells of Rebbe in Eretz Yisrael represent when he's rebuilding Bells Hasidus? What does people like the Satmarov, who's already an older and respected leader, represent when he's rebuilding Satmar? 
the Baba Varebbe, who, who was, who was almost the last thing left from the glory of Tzans, the glory of Galicia, the glory of everything. His father and his uncles and his great grandparents and the different Chaim represented. He was a survivor. He was a connection. He was something that brought them back there. And therefore, many people, these people didn't rebuild. These Rebbes didn't rebuild strictly with Hasidim who came from the geographical area, who their parents and grandparents had been dedicated Hasidim of the Rechaim and had lived within the proximity of Rudnik in Galicia. That's not who they built it with. They built it with Hasidim from different backgrounds. Many of them were Hungarian Hasidim, which I'll get to in a second. I'm finishing. And there was, and there was many of them who, 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 who related to even non-Hasidim. But because they were a charismatic personality, because they were a magnetic personality, and a leader, and with energy, and a desire to rebuild, and they were this connection to a world that was, they reminded them of where they came from and who they were, that drew people to them. And that drew people to join them in their program of rebuilding. And that's why Hungarian Jewry plays a major role here. Hungarian Jewry relatively is less affected because of you know, because of the military situation, because of the Nazis only invaded at a later stage in the war, there are more Hungarian survivors. Skvera Hasidus, the Skvera Rebbe escapes as a refugee in the beginning of the war. Today, Skvera is a quite a large Hasidus in the United States. I grew up in Muncie near Skvera. It's pretty, pretty big, pretty impressive. Almost none of them come from Skvera. Skvera is a, is a Chernobyl uh, dynasty that was small then, that was non-existent in 1939, and somehow rebuilt, um, and somehow rebuilt how... Ramosha Naishlis had a yeshiva. He was a Hungarian Rav. He was not Hasidish. He was from Oberland, which is the whole story, what the differences, shades of Hungarian Jewry are. The non-Hasidic Oberland, the Hasidic Unterland. And he has a yeshiva. He's a Rosh Yeshiva. Talmud Chacham, a huge Paisik. Remember him? And, hmm? In Naitra. And he, <coughs> and he gets close to the Skver Rebbe. And he brings his whole yeshiva into Skver. He becomes the Avbezdin of Skver, the Paisik of Skver, the Rav of Skver. And Ramesh Naishlis brings all these Hungarian survivors with him. And that's why Satmar becomes. Satmar, before the war, was a small Hasidus. It was a, really a non-existent Hasidus. It, was, it came from Sigurd. It came from the Yisach Moshe. And after the war, the Satmar Rav was a personality. He went around the benches of Williamsburg, taking Hungarian survivors by the lapels and saying, go get a job. Go get married. Go live life again. Get past your trauma. Get past what you were, the destruction. We have to rebuild. And he became a father to these people. And today he's remembered for being anti-Zionist. He was a father to tens of thousands of people, to survivors. He rebuilt them. He took them in his hands and he said, we're rebuilding. So Satmar Hasidus became out of the pure charisma of the Satmar Rav. Now some were more successful than others. The ones who were more successful were because of charisma, because of who they attracted, and because of a host of other factors. I'll end off with one last story. I'm really ending now. And a, a great uncle of mine, um, my wife's uh, grandmother came from a big, somewhat Hasidish family, and her four siblings, they escaped from Germany, from Hamburg, at the beginning of, uh, after Kristallnacht, in the 1930s. And they originally came from Eastern Europe. They were Ostjuden, <coughs> Eastern European Juden living in Germany, which is a common phenomenon in the interwar period. They weren't real, genuine, pure Yekas. And they, so they had a Hasidic background, but they're living in Germany. They escape as refugees to the West Side, by the way, to, in the 1930s. And they had four children. And uh, the Bistritsky family. 
One, my wife's grandmother, she married a Yekka. She was from Hamburg. She met a Yekka, another Jew from Frankfurt. They got married and they led a Yekkish lifestyle. Another one married a native-born American, you know, a doctor, graduated medical school, second-generation American, moved out to Farakaway, and they lived a very American lifestyle. Another one remained what the original Hasidic roots that he had, which was Bayan, and he went down to the Lower East Side, or Ramat Cheshleva, the Biyana Rebbe, had a shtibel, still a shtibel that exists, and he was the only Biyana Rebbe from all the Biyan. Most of the Biyana Rebbes were either killed and their Hasidim were wiped out, and Biyan as a Hasidus was completely decimated. There was one little shtibel on the Lower East Side of one Biyana Rebbe that remained, who had moved here before the war, and the whole Biyan that we know, mainly in Eretz Yisrael, but also today in Borough Park and other places, that exists is from that one little place. And that's where he went. The fourth one, my wife's great uncle went to Chabad and became one of the closest chassidim to the Rebbe and started at Hatzol in Crown Heights and the whole Aganza Maisa. So there you have a complete split in one family. So I once asked the great uncle who was a Chabad, he was a major personality in Chabad, I asked him, how come you left your background in Bayan, your brother stayed, and you went to Chabad? And he said, I'll be honest, I went down to Lower East Side. And what was going on beyond in the 1940s and 50s when I was growing up? Ten old Hasidim around this Heiligit Tzaddik. And they said, there's no future for me here. I'm young, I'm looking for excitement. I'm looking for something, you know, to, to, to revive Yiddishkeit. And it didn't talk to me. Went down to Crown Heights, and it was fun. <laughs> it, was, it, it was drinking, and it was exciting, and it was, there, things were happening there. There were young people coming. Now, I'm not coming to Nakba. I love Bayan, and I'm all good. And I'm, I'm saying, what I'm saying is a point uh, that the revival of Hasidus, and who was successful, and who was not successful, or who was less successful, who was more successful, was a lot based on who they're able to attract to their ranks, what their personal charisma was, what their vision, what their program was all about, and that had a large uh, um, factor in what was able to rebuild Hasidus, and we should all be zeichet to take our part in spreading the light and building it over here in the United States of America. Yeah. What, what determined, why did so many rebels come to America instead of Territ Israel? What the natural progression have been if you're leaving to go to Eretz Israel? Why, why, why people come to America? Like you said, it was such a... So it's a good question. Uh, they, the, um, many of them, because it was just the only possibility, Eretz Israel was hard to get to. Um, there was also economic, the Satmar of Lamashal was economic, uh, purely economic. He went to Eretz Yisrael, got himself into debt, left after a year to go on a fundraising trip to cover his debts to go back and remained. Um, some didn't like the atmosphere in Eretz Yisrael. Some, and uh, there could be all kinds of other reasons, some technical, some more ideological, that they uh, that it just didn't work out to come to Eretz Yisrael. Right, came to America. Yes, yes. Right. Most of them, most of them, it was technical. They didn't let them in. Yeah, the British didn't let them in before 1948. Not let them in. Only quotas. British not let the mass immigration there. Just quotas. Why do you say that the the British? I think they're not.